Every leader has a strategy. Executing on that strategy is the challenge. If you want to learn how to effectively achieve what you've set out to accomplish, then this show is for you. Gain keen insights and listen in as leaders share their stories and challenges. Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation welcome you to Leader Dialogue Radio. Hello, everyone. I'm Duffy Dixon. Welcome to Leader Dialogue, brought to you by Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. Joining me in studio is Ben Sawyer. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Soar Vision Group. Ben has more than 30 years of executive leadership training. He launched the Soar Vision Group to help align people with purpose and to achieve exceptional results. And I love what is said on the Leader Dialogue website. Everyone has a playbook execution is the challenge. Also joining us is Jennifer Strahan. She is the Chief Operating Officer of Soar Vision Group. Jennifer has partnered with more than 100 health systems and businesses across the U.S. She helps them transform their strategic and administrative operations. And our special guest this week is Scott McIntyre. He is the Chief Executive Officer of GuideHouse. Now, Scott brings to his role years of experience in mergers and acquisitions, debt and cost restructuring, and financial modeling. Prior to being with PwC, he served as a partner at KPMG, serving defense and aerospace, government and industrial manufacturing customers. He chairs the Prevent Cancer Foundation's board, and he sits on the board of the Baldridge Foundation. Welcome, Scott. Thank you so much. So we want to know a little bit more about you and your background. I hear that you started out in accounting, and my mother's an accountant, so I I have a fond I have a fondness for accountants. I couldn't do it. We all should have fondness for accountants. (laughs) Actually, I'm I'm not a qualified accountant. I was a management consultant in a in an accounting firm, and uh, in a firm that that uh, KPMG that. Uh, leading professional services and accounting firm. I was on the consulting side, but a lot of what we do and did back then obviously revolves around financial management, financial engineering, and some of the things you talked about, uh, cost structure, debt restructuring, et cetera. So uh, a strong affinity for the pr- profession, and um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's changing a lot. And, and you know, one of the biggest changes I had was moving out of an accounting firm recently in the form of PwC uh, to start GuideHouse just about a year and a half ago. And tell us a little bit about GuideHouse, uh, its genesis, its purpose, kind of what, what you're seeing as its future play. Certainly, pleased to do so. So GuideHouse actually is a carve-out from PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, that occurred just about a year and a half ago. Yeah. And prior to that carve-out, it was Pricewaterhouse's U.S. public sector business. So it was the business serving all of the professional services, consulting, and accounting needs of the U.S. federal government, state and local governments, many nonprofits, and we worked a lot throughout the uh, the global PwC network, uh, working with foreign governments as well. We monetized that business. We put uh, we put a wall around it, uh, created a subsidiary, and like I said, about 18 months ago, we separated that through a transaction with support from Veritas Capital, a leading private equity firm out of New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, the business is you know, owned primarily by Veritas Capital, with a significant chunk of ownership uh, in the hands of the management team. And we rebranded just about a year and a half ago as GuideHouse, and we are about a 2,000-person company today. Uh, It's been publicly announced that we're embarking on a very large transaction that is set to close one week from today that will make us about a 7,000- or 8,000-person consultancy uh, with a pretty significant global footprint and 70 offices around the world. But we're kind of a a brand-new company in one sense, uh, very entrepreneurial, very agile, very flat. Uh, and in another sense, we have a legacy in you know a business that's over 150 years old in the form of uh, PwC. 
How exciting! And by the way, a pretty fast trajectory, I have to say, for yeah. a, a new, you know, a new entity. That's very impressive, Scott. Thank you. Well, it was designed when we when we did our carve out, and and I I want to admit for all the listeners, I am uh, certainly not an experienced carve out leader. This is my first rodeo, uh, actually taking a business, creating the subsidiary. Uh, going through all of the necessary sell side activities to to monetize it and then and then sell it and then stand it up and operate it. Right. Uh, one of the things that we did when we went through that process, and this was in, with the incredible help of Veritas Capital, was to design the business to really be a platform for acquisition. So the business had to have stable operations. It had to have strong leadership. Uh, it had to have you know top top notch quality and a quality program, which of course is the subject of much of our discussion today. Mm-hmm. These and some other elements conspired to give us a platform that Veritas Capital was comfortable could serve as a platform for acquisition. So making the very large acquisition uh, that we've announced and intended to make with Navigant Consulting is uh, it's on the one hand it's headline making because it's big, it's transformational, and it is as you pointed out, Ben, it's unique. Uh, on the other hand, it's it's precisely what we designed to do when we uh, contemplated this carve out two you know two years ago. Yeah. So Scott, a couple things. Just first of all, to uh, ground the listeners, and some some uh, new listeners are probably dialing in. Um, we recommend that you go to the leaderdialogue.com uh, website, and dialogue is spelled in this case D I A L O G U E. So it's www.leaderdialogue.com, and you will find on the homepage something we call the organizational hierarchy of needs. So as, an, as a listener, uh, the organizational hierarchy of needs is something that uh, has been kind of lurking within uh, the Baldridge Performance Excellence Framework. We were able to surface that. It makes it f- uh, fairly easy then to understand uh, what the whole thing is about uh, from a graphic standpoint. And today, as we talk with Scott McIntyre, he, uh, with the PwC division he was with, was the recipient of a National Baldridge Award. And so, Scott, I want to just come back to you on that. Tell us a little bit about that experience and how it's influenced you in what you're doing now with GuideHouse, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we we uh, were a recipient of the Baldridge Award uh, in uh, 2014. I think the award was actually bestowed on us in 2015. Uh, it was the result of about a six-year journey yep. of deciding that we were going to pursue Baldridge. And I'll talk about that momentarily, why we did that, what we got out of it, what the challenges were, of course. But after we decided to pursue it and got serious about it, and that took a couple of cycles of, of understanding and learning, uh, it took about six years to, to get that achievement. Uh, I'll tell you what, what was never anticipated, and that was around you know, 2014, 2015. It wasn't anticipated that we would be carving this business out. I also look back, and you know, carving the business out and standing up a new enterprise. Yeah, right. I also look back, uh, you know, hindsight is, is darn near 2020, and I can see very clearly that our decision on the Baldrige was inextricably linked to our ability to carve this business out very successfully, stand it up as an independent entity very quickly, uh, do so with no TSA agreements in place uh, with respect to our former parent. And, you know, to stand up a business of this size with no transaction services agreements is, is pretty unique. It may be unique. It, it is. I mean, yeah, we didn't, we, there's a variety of reasons we didn't do that, but we literally had to stand everything up in, in a 12-week period to, to be wow. a fully functioning large business. And, you know, I look back on it, and I've shared this with others as well as we continue to serve as a benchmark company for businesses looking to improve their quality. An unanticipated benefit of the Baldrige framework and the discipline 
was the resiliency that was built into the business. It's not perfect, but what it is is a, a, a clear indication that without all the Baldrige framework and the accoutrements of, of building out a world-class quality program, I am certain that our transaction and the transition to a standalone platform, one that in its first year took on a lot of debt. I mean, that's what you do in private equity. You spin a business out, you, you, know, you buy it with the investor's money, uh, 20% down or so, you load it up with debt, and you expand uh, your investment base. That, all of that would not have happened as effectively as it did without the discipline of Baldridge and the built-in quality we have. So it was never designed to do that, but it turned out to be a lifesaver uh, in the end. It was designed to give us a business that consistently grew, and we enjoyed about a 21% organic CAGR uh, over the three or four years leading into our transaction. It was designed to be a business that would deliver exceptional quality to our clients, and both subjective and objective measures uh, certainly prove that to be the case. Those are the types of things you normally go into your board with a business case to pursue something like this, uh, and, they, and they delivered. But I think sometimes, you know, in our situation, looking back, the unanticipated benefits associated with something as tumultuous as our transaction uh, were, were definitely the, the heavier-weighted attributes and, and advantages of Baldridge in, in, in retrospect. Yeah, that's fascinating. So uh, I know we're going to want to dive into some details here as it relates to what uh, specifically about the Baldridge framework and the quality uh, platform was applicable, for example, colleague engagement, uh, right, with the workforce, uh, uh, being able to have clearly defined strategies and processes, customer value creation, the, the leadership principles, all those things that, you know, that we've talked about, Scott. So um, I'm going to turn it over to Jennifer. And Jennifer, maybe you could just lead that discussion a little bit in terms of some of the specific questions there. Yeah, one of the questions that comes to mind for me is that as you guys develop this carve out and you're obviously getting ready for this new journey that you're about to go on, I think about culture and how much with colleagues they there's a natural level of anxiety when you hear that even if you know or believe it's going to be really good for the business so can you talk a little bit about how you guys manage that with your team members how you kind of work through that and even thought about how the culture may have changed over time yeah sure jennifer and, and i agree with you not only on the the, the perspective that you know, culture is in, in the the sustainability of a strong culture through Normal economic times as well as challenging times and, and changes to the business is, is an imperative. And in fact, it's, it's interesting because when you, I think when you embark on a quality journey like we did with Baldridge, uh, and then you encounter an opportunity like we did with the carve-out and subsequent stand-up of this business, launch of this new business, um, I think culture is probably the, the key ingredient in making stuff happen, right? Because we all know that really well-developed strategies without the right culture, without the right engagement at the workforce level, they don't really go anywhere, right? right. You could, but you could have a, a really somewhat ill-conceived strategy that good people can work around and get mm -hmm. results. And yep. I, I'm not suggesting that's a, a formula for success, <laughs> uh, but it's a fail-safe provision if you have great people and a great culture. So we've always been concerned, like, like most responsible companies, with the quality of our culture, with living our values, with having a vision that resonates, but also uh, is motivating to our people and, and is lived and proven year after year. We go back to the vision and show how we're progressing against it. And of course, the same is true with the mission. Um, but also culture is about listening to your people and learning from them and, and learning and determining what's important to them. That's a legacy that we enjoyed in a very formal, uh, structured way uh, through our, our, our former parent. And it is, once we did our carve-out, that formed the basis for uh, 
uh, our perspective on how we were going to continue to sustain and build a culture. And it takes us right up to this acquisition we talked about a few moments ago. We, we looked at more than 30 different prospective acquisitions in the past 12 or 15 months. Uh, I think the exact number was 31. And those, those companies range from size, I would say, in the $20, $25 million range up to the $700 million range. And the one thing that distinguished the transaction that we are pursuing and, and intend to close in a week was their culture. Their culture looked like ours. Their values were similar to ours. Their leadership was committed to living those values and could actually give us contemporary proof points of the same. And sort of, you know, when you think about doing a, a big acquisition, the things that come to mind, and, and they're, they're certainly appropriate to come to mind, are things like financial due diligence, confirmatory diligence, you know, reviews of taxes and, and uh, leases and accounting structures. Uh, all of that is important and, and speaks to the economics of a transaction and, and certainly is necessary to get capital. Uh, but I, I would say it's fair to, fair to defend that about half of our time was spent on getting to know our future colleagues, understanding how they operate, how they treat their people, yeah. uh, learning what their people find uh, really unique and valuable about their company, and then determining, and this is hard to do, determining whether we can look in the mirror and legitimately commit to recreating or just adopting those things on the combined platform. Because if you don't, if you don't take those steps, uh, you run the risk of having two cultures that could be just a few degrees off or could be dramatically different. And They'll never come together well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, 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 does, it does tie back to Baldridge. One of the things that we were very proud of when we made our first of three applications, I believe it was three applications, was that we, we felt we had a very strong culture. We had very motivated employees, and we still enjoy that to this day. Uh, and I think the reason for that is that's, at the end of the day, the most important investment we can make. So just a quick question here, Scott, because I want to linger on this employee engagement thing. It's, it's, it's obviously really, really critical. Um, John Cotter, in, in, who is a professor emeritus at, at uh, uh, Harvard Business School, um, has done some really interesting research about, about this and in a, a couple of things that jump out of that research. One is that, in general, across most industries, only about 5% of employees understand how their job actually connects to the strategy. And then he did a, an interesting study where he, he had six different strategic plans that he put in a conference room and he redacted the names and then he invited middle managers in from those companies and all they had to do was find their company's strategic plan and only 29% of them could do so. So wow. it's multiple choice. Yeah, basically it's multiple <laughs> oh, choice. Oh, wow. So, and I think we've actually mentioned this on a previous show, but I'm really, I'm really curious as you're talking about this, Scott, um, how is it that you get and you were able to get PwC and now Guidehouse employees to essentially act like owners, understand that connection. And you, you referred to the fact that just having talented people is like step one, because if the strategy is somehow off or soft or you know maybe going in the wrong direction, they'll self-correct. But beyond that, how do you create that alignment so it's not 5% and it's not 29%, it's more like 80%? Yeah, and I think you're I think you're directionally correct, right? You you can't have five, fifteen, twenty percent of of the people be torchbearers and be ambassadors of the brand and of the operational improvement ideas that someone has or even the strategy. You need the overwhelming majority. Uh, it's it's interesting though. You began the question with the statement around the uh, the study that was done, and I'm not familiar with the study, but of course, if anybody who's interested at all in improving the performance of their business, and I am. 
uh, gets hung up on, on what you suggested is that there was a minority of the people actually recognized their own strategy in a multiple choice test. So now I'm all hung up on whether A, I should do that, and B, I'm afraid of the results. That, that is, uh, that's nothing we've ever done before, and I could certainly see the value of either confirming that people really understand your strategy and understand, to your point, their role in it, uh, you know, as, as well as you know, understanding if there's a gap in that perception. But it's interesting, uh, you, know, we, we've, uh, you, you asked how we, you know, how we get the people involved and how we motivate people in that capacity. Uh, I've got to be honest with you, when we embarked on this, it wasn't difficult. The idea of explaining to folks how much more we could be if we had a proven world-class and, and recognized if we were to win the Baldrige Award, recognized quality program, and, and really doing a grassroots effort. You know, we've got thousands of employees, but being able to talk to them and communicate the value of Baldrige, communicate what it, what it means, what it means to us, why we're doing this. You, know, you could assume, although candidly I don't, I don't think we did assume this, that uh, somebody could perceive a quality program as a euphemism or a Trojan horse for headcount reduction or other cost-cutting right, measures. Right. Uh, but we were very transparent with people, and it, I think the only limitation on our transparency was our, our early ignorance and sometimes naivete around what is required uh, to really overhaul an already strong quality program and to do so inside a, a very well-established business that has certain priorities as a, you know, as a subsidiary to that business. You have to navigate through those parent expectations, of course, and, and their requirements. Uh, but in terms of engaging our people, and I, I'm, not, I'm not qualified to suggest at the beginning, at the end of the journey, or even today, where we are in terms of the kind of engagement you're talking about, uh, you know, undertake a massive change initiative and uh, make it durable, but I think 80% uh, you know, and above is probably a reasonable metric and, and one that should be sustained. But when you do start with really good people and you're transparent with them about what your objectives are, uh, you don't give them a blizzard of confusing information uh, because they've got other complex things to do, in, in our case as management consultants, uh, but you give them the basics so that they can begin to see exactly what we're trying to achieve together and that this is great for our business, but it's also great for their individual brands. You know, one of the things I speak about when I, when I speak at some of our orientation sessions for new hires is I talk about Baldridge. And, you know, it's, it's nice to inform folks uh, about our quality journey and how that quality journey and how that quality framework relates to the business they're joining here on day one. But the really important thing about having that dialogue is to ensure that people understand you're joining a business that is, is a, is a Baldridge-based business, and ultimately that's part of your new brand. It's part right. of your resume. You know, if you were to leave here at some point, you, know, you, you should be proud that you've been on a high-quality platform. Uh, and for some people, as you can imagine, the first time they've heard of Baldridge is in that setting. Uh, it's amazing how many people come into orientation in that particular setting who are familiar with it, at least at a notional level, and really appreciate the fact that we've taken the time to build a business uh, that A, has a demonstrated high-quality uh, framework behind it, and B, that we're so committed to the sustainment of that quality. It makes people feel good about it. It's, uh, so it was easy getting people on board. So you, you brought up a really good point right there where you talked about orientation and really starting out their first exposure to the company by helping them understand how important this is. Because in orientation, as you guys know, it is just a fire hydrant of information and you just sure. hope they retain a, a piece of it. But you've alluded to it a couple of times around a quality program or high quality. How do you as a company, how do you guys define quality or what is your quality program? Yeah, and, and defining quality, it, was, was, it wasn't a struggle, but it was a 
you have to agree on what's important. And you start with, for us, and I guess this would be true for most companies, we don't define quality. Right? We, we, could, we could sit in a room and it could become an academic or strategic exercise of, uh, of us determining what quality really is and what measurements of that quality are important. Um, the, the danger of that, of course, is you miss the real mark, and it's, it's what the client believes mm-hmm. is quality, right? So you really have to get inside your client's heads and understand the different demographics and the different markets that you're serving, and to the extent that there are differences in the product or service that you're furnishing them, uh, or the sales process, or the ongoing engagement with those clients, whatever that, uh, you know, whatever that combination of the, you know, the sale and the, and the delivery is, really got to understand what clients mean when they look for quality. Is it, is it, is it, is it performing to specification? Is it, uh, is it innovation? Is mm-hmm. it, uh, are you measuring it with client feedback? Are you comparing client feedback consistently over time? Those are things that were very important to us. And, and I can tell you our initial foray into this was for us to define quality by fiat. And that's, that's you know, not the worst thing in the world to do. I'm sure you could define quality as you believe uh, it relates to your client's needs and do so in a vacuum, so to speak. No one would ever say we're doing this in a vacuum, but it can get done that way, and come up with a better quality program than you had before. Uh, but when we went out and started speaking to our clients and putting them into different demographics and different buying channels uh, with different services and different, you know, lifetime expectations of, of, of post-sale service, you start to realize that clients really congeal around a couple of things, and that's a little bit proprietary because it's a lot of work we did with respect to our client base. But having that knowledge of what really matters to them and how, you know, how the, the performance of quality in their minds uh, leads to additional opportunities, leads to deeper trust, leads to potentially higher margins on downstream mm-hmm. work, um, that's, all, you know, that's all very valuable. But for us, that helped us determine, okay, this is what our clients actually define as quality. Now let's build a program that gives us the ability to deliver that consistently, gives us the ability to display it to the clients so they, they, you know, they know they're getting quality, and, uh, and ultimately gives us the opportunity, and this is, as, as all of you know, critical to Baldridge, gives us the opportunity not to rest on our laurels and claim success, <laughs> but have a feedback mechanism that allows us to improve you know, quarter after quarter, year after year. And that's something we've enjoyed tremendously uh, coming out of Baldridge is that that I said this at an event the other day. um, I was proud of our quality and and our quality program when we designed it, when it was endorsed, so to speak, through the Baldridge Award. Uh, But I look back on it and I'm embarrassed by how uh, immature it was relative to the quality we enjoy today, four or five years later, through that continuous improvement. You mentioned a couple of things that I think really just I want to pull out for listeners because they're so embedded in um, the the Baldridge framework, and that was around you talked about performance, but not only performance, innovation. You talked about consistency, and you talked about feedback and making sure you've got clarity on, hey, how are we doing after all of this? And I love that four years later, you're still working towards that improvement. Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm going to go back real quickly to one of the very first post Baldridge Award events that I attended. And, and it was obviously we were very happy. We felt we had achieved something, and, and we had, right? Mm-hmm. We, we set out to win the Baldridge Award. We won the Baldridge Award. We set out to be the pro- first professional services firm to accomplish that. We accomplished it. But I quickly learned from other CEOs who had won the Baldridge Award how important sustaining quality was. And you really, you really can't 
be a benchmark organization of quality if you take a long pause, mm-hmm. right? So all of the effort and all of the sort of the game planning, because I've, I've likened the, the long quality journey to, you know, like a, uh, you know, the, the week that leads up to the big game, all that game planning mm-hmm. on a sustained basis has to pick up very quickly with a, you know, with a quick break, a quick celebration, and, and then it needs to be embedded in your culture. And it, it is different, uh, at least in my experience, and, and I've, I've heard other CEOs say similar things, it's different to go from a mentality of running a project, however mm-hmm. prolonged that project may be, to win the Baldrige Award. Now, nobody, as you know, and you've talked to other recipients and others who've pursued it, nobody ever admits that they were getting into this to win the award. Correct. They always talk about, and there, there, there's some sincerity to this, they always talk about pursuing it so that we could improve our employee experience, employee engagement, our strategy development process, the integration of our processes with one another, and generally become a better and better company. And I think that CEOs and, and others <clears throat> who've won this award can say that and, and not be telling a mistruth. But at the end of the day, they all wanted to win the Baldrige Award. That's also true. Yeah. And we're no different. Uh, so it's different to go from sort of this project mentality, even if it's a two or three or six year project to mm-hmm. win the award to sustainment without degrading the investment of time and effort into continuous improvement. It's easy to do it when you've got an eye on the prize. Mm-hmm. It can be harder to do it when you're basically taking the attitude that if I'm not getting better, you know, faster than other people are getting better, then I'm getting worse. And yeah. that philosophy pervades what we try to do when we uh, build quality into everything we do and, and keep one another accountable for continuous improvement. But it is a different phase, and it's a different, it takes a different mindset and a different motivating factor for your people. Yeah, so it's interesting. When we have interviewed all these Baldridge winners, and we've had the good fortune of doing a lot of that, yeah. we're almost uniquely told the journey itself is the reward, right? Which, And, and that's really underscores what you're talking about, Scott, which is you don't stop. It's not a project. It's it's an ongoing thing. And and, and for listeners, um, we've talked before about the different categories, that there are seven categories within Baldridge, results being the last one, right, comparative results. But what I'm thinking about as I'm hearing you talk is category three is about the customer, and it's the voice of the customer process and really, really understanding them and what's important. And it prefaces your strategy deployment, otherwise you can be one-off or multiple levels off without that and and then how that also ties directly to operational execution like you know if you don't know what the customers want and you don't have a strategy that's aligned it the disconnects can just keep going on down and my question is how often does that change how often should an organization be tapping into their client or their customer so that's an awesome question, and candidly, it was one of our learnings throughout this journey. And, and the, the answer, at least for our organization, and in many cases this is the benchmark we've provided others who've looked at our quality program, the answer is you have to have multiple touch points. You have to have multiple ways to reveal customer sentiment, reveal where customers believe their needs are moving, because it's not enough to perceive how well you're doing today or how well you mm-hmm. did yesterday. Uh, it's, it's, that's important, especially where it come, when it comes to identifying specific opportunities for improvement. But you also obviously need to know where the industry is going, where the clients' needs think where the clients rather think their needs are going to evolve and, and travel in the future. And the reality is, you know, as you would expect, we do things like at the end of every engagement, we survey our clients for those two things and a few other pieces of information. We also insist, as, and this is part of our 
it's in our Baldrige application, which I think is online at NIST, we also insist that we're out there visiting large and small clients alike uh, to, to make sure we have a representation on an annual basis of how we're performing and how we perform vis-a-vis -vis our competition. We take our competition very seriously. They're very good in some cases, and we want to make sure we're not falling behind. So I, I think it really needs to be, a, you know, the, the word's overused, but it needs to be institutionalized, but it also needs to be institutionalized with multiple vectors. I, I, I think it's, uh, I've come out of an environment where the primary means of understanding customer sentiment is very rear view mirror, and it's sort of like once a year, and that's not really enough. And, yeah. uh, and you know, you'll never get it perfect, right, because every single customer and every single client is different, uh, but it, it, one of the three or four big things we learned from Baldridge over a six-year time frame was you can begin this framework, you can sort of begin your process at any point in the framework, but starting with the customer and integrating everything from that perspective was great for us, and it's how we recommend other people do it. So, Scott, I, I hope you're able to join us for the deep dive next week. Certainly. Okay, and so uh, what we always like to do in that deep dive is surface a couple of the principles that have come up in this discussion. And so I've been noting those as we've, as we've gone, and we'll kick off next week's radio show with some of these. So one of them is the myths of organizational performance. We'll reference a, a very interesting longitudinal study that Donald Hull from MIT and Rebecca Humkeys from the London School of Economics uh, surface. Uh, and then you, we spent a lot of time about talking about employee engagement and how you respect and share, they, they share in responsibility uh, and how that's done. They're really partners and how you, how you make that happen. And then we want to circle back to this customer uh, focus and how everything is driven from it. And without you sharing any proprietary information, we want to mm -hmm. talk about how important sustainability and client ownership is to clients from the standpoint of they're not constantly and forever dependent on their consulting company. So all easy things I'm hearing. Yeah. <laughs> we sure, call I'll it a Tuesday. We'll get that in 30 minutes. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm sure there's some other things you might have, all of you might have jotted down, but those are, those are three kind of key ones that I, I saw surfaced. Sounds great. Well, we look forward to next week. Thanks so much, Scott, for joining us again. Scott McIntyre, who joins us as the Chief Executive Officer of Guidehouse, who is about to uh, become a much bigger company if everything <laughs> goes correctly. So we appreciate your time, especially during what has to be a busy time for you. We also thank our listeners for joining us on Leader Dialogue, brought to you by SOAR Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. Remember, you can listen to a new live show every Friday, 1 o'clock Eastern Time. Visit Business Radio X, Gwinnett Studio, and look for Leader Dialogue or visit leaderdialogue.com slash podcast. On behalf of Ben, Jennifer, and our producers, Mike and Trey, I'm Duffy Dixon. Join us next time on Leader Dialogue here on Business Radio X.